Series 3 of Old Brother, a podcast about Salford slash Manchester's legendary musical institution, The Fall. Each week, we invite on a guest to chat about their experiences and memories of the group. You can find us at Spotify, Apple and all the usual suspects, but we're hosted at play.acast.com forward slash s forward slash Old Brother. All episodes are also available on YouTube. You can search for Old Brother Podcast and subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. This week, we're joined by writer, editor, journalist, radio host, media entrepreneur and lifelong Leeds fan, James Brown, who discusses his fascinating career and his many interactions with The Fall, including the unlikely tale of when he trod the boards with our kid. Enjoy this one. Right, here we are. Episode one of series three, unbelievably, of Old Brother. Wow. <laughs> uh, with me, uh, Paul Hanley, and my esteemed colleague, Mr. Stephen Hanley. How are you, Steve? You right? Hello, yeah, I'm fine, thanks. Yeah. Nice to be back. <laughs> nice to be back in it, eh? Back in the th- cut and thrust. <laughs> so, joining us today, we're delighted to say, is journalist, author, and radio host, and according to Wikipedia, Media entrepreneur, we'll probably get into that, what that, what that actually means, Mr. James Brown, who uh, currently uh, Hi. the release of his new book, Animal House. Uh, good afternoon, James, how are you? Afternoon, guys. Yeah, I'm good, uh, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Good, thanks. good. Uh, how's the book going? Seems to, be, it seems to be going down well. Suspiciously well. mean... <laughs> 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 When you make an album, you're in a room with a load of other people, whether you like them or not, you're in there with them. But writing a book, it's quite a solitary thing. And, um, well, you've both done it, so you know. But um, it took me about six years on and off to complete it. And uh, I didn't know, I didn't really know if anyone would really want to know what it was like hanging around with the Happy Mondays. In, <laughs> I'm sure they would. Alongside really personal stuff about my family and stuff. So, it, it, I, I was a bit nervous when it came out, and people seem to like it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been well. Yeah. So did you think it'd take you six years? To be honest, Steve, I didn't think I'd ever finish it, and I think yeah. the publisher thought that as well. You know, some people get into projects and they just don't complete it. Um, I wrote the thanks to page and um, the opening page probably fifty times over the last twenty years, but then I'd get bored, you know. Just, just mm-hmm. can't stand it. It's like, it's like groups who spend too long trying to think of their name and not write any songs. Yeah, it's a, well, work expands to fit time a lot, doesn't it? You, you know, if they said to you, you've got you've got six weeks to write this, <laughs> you might get a bit more done. But uh... yeah, well, I mean, that's a good point because. I worked out about halfway through the period of time I was supposed to be writing the book, I worked out that I'd actually written more on Twitter (laughs) than the whole book was required to be. I think I'd written by about 2014 or something, I'd written like 100,000 words on Twitter, which is just fucking nuts. Um, (laughs) It's getting focused, you know, on on the right stuff and... um, and then making it good, and I, I mean, I'm, I've got about thirty thousand words I took out. There's a lot of music things that I took out because, I, I, in the end, what I decided to do was I, you know, I was writing about music from when I was about seventeen, eighteen. I've got so many interviews and so many people that I've met, and people that I interviewed over and over again, like the Fall or Beastie Boys or the Cult or whoever. And um, I just thought I'm going to pick five or six people that influenced me 
uh, or who kind of changed the way I was thinking about things or maybe influenced Loaded. Uh, and yeah. that's what I did. And I'm going to save everything else so that if this goes well, I can do another one that's that's more just about bands and just about yeah. music. So that, right. those people are The Fall, um, the KLF or the Jams, as they were. They're just about entrance of Moo Moo when I first came mm. across them. The Time Lords. Let's give them all the names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mentioned that in there. The Beastie Boys, um, Popoli itself, Happy Mondays, and a few others, a few other people here and there that I mentioned. Yeah. But that that was that was it. So you guys are in there. Yeah. So I've got to say, what was the first time? I was looking in the book. You'd reckon first time you saw the fall? I think you said the warehouse, but warehouse, was it the warehouse the first time you saw them? Yeah, right. Because I was looking the sort of years you were talking about. We played the beer keller a few times as well. I don't know if you ever saw the fall there. You put, no, you played the warehouse in Leeds. It was half full. Mark had his classic sort of shitty-looking nylon Harrington on, uh, <laughs> and I reviewed it for the Yorks for the uh, for the sort of left-wing What's On magazine, which was called Leeds of a Paper. Mm-hmm. What year was that then, James? I think that was about nineteen eighty-three. Right. Yes, we play, apparently, I've been looking, we played the uh, warehouse on the 16th of January 1983, supported by somebody called the Jazz Hipsters. Yep, that would be it. That oh, was really? it. Yeah. So that was that was a good guess. I mean, that was a guess of when I, I don't I don't have a list of my reviews to hand, but that's that's when it was. And I was so young, I think I got some of the song titles wrong in the, the thing, because I, the, the way I came to discover the four was really like most people through um, John Peel, obviously, but... Um, yeah. And and then getting the singles, and um, when there was a girl at school I used to fancy, I had a totally wired badge, which Ooh. was another one. Another, it sounds sort of weird, but you know there was a time when there were so many bands coming out that actually you could find out about new bands from those tiny badges people had. Oh I, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I used to have a Human League badge before they were well known, and people were always asking me what it was. You know, two well, people. Buscocks were the ones for that with the badges, weren't they? Yeah, well, yeah, a bit before my time, I guess, when they were yeah. with them. But um, so yeah, that was that was the um, that was the first time I saw the fall, and the first time I wrote about them. And then I had a mate who was in a band with um, John Lake, and he he gave me a tape of a load of the different albums and stuff. And that was really when I really got into them. Right, was that when you had the fanzine then? Yeah, yeah. So sort of like. I started my fanzine in about 1982 uh, or 83. And uh, I, don't think I, I don't think the four were ever in. But then the first time I met you guys was Craig got me backstage at the um, International t- International in Manchester. Wow. And I got mm-hmm. my tape recorder out. I met Craig because I used to play football with Mark Riley in Sale. Yeah, they used to live in the same house, Craig and Mark, in a yeah, big, big, big sort of Victorian house. Yeah, in so sale. that's when I got to know Craig. I went, I'd, I'd go and see Mark and Tracy after football, or just pop round and see him. I was living in sort of the edge of Fallowfield and Wivington with some ex-students who I was friends with. One of them was in a band called Big Flame. Oh he, yeah, oh yeah. So that's I lived in Manchester for about a year and a half after I left Leeds and before I went to London. How um, did you get to know Mark? Mark Ryan, I don't, I don't, I don't know actually. Um, maybe just through the fanzine because you remember he had the band the Creepers. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and they were very sort of grassroots. See, you know him and Jim. Is it Jim yeah. Kelbatter? 
Yeah. yeah, and um, so I probably met, and yeah, I mean, he had that record label, Dinny In Tape. So I imagine I probably met him maybe playing at Big Flames Club. I imagine I probably just met Mark at a club or something like that. Right. And, you uh, play football with him. Yeah, oh, was it? Oh, I can't. I think what it was like. But football was any good, Mark? At football, I can't remember. But it was a pretty good game. You know, we played every week, and um, and his wife was nice, Tracy. So just, yeah. I mean, literally, I, I couldn't cook or anything then. So I think I used to go around there for my tea. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was what a good footballer, Mark. He was on the school team. I remember. Was I remember. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, like I say, it was a good standard game. I was, I wasn't yeah. a bad footballer myself, and it was a good standard game. I used to go all the way down the sail on a bus that just went yeah. up one road, and then um, I think we played in a, I think we played in a sports centre that might be attached to a rugby club or something like that. I can't really remember, and that was it really. And then I got to know Craig, and there was another guy who used to help Jim do the record label, I think. In, uh, he played football as well, and we used to. I don't know if he used to drive you guys around or something, but anyway, that was the first time I met the four backstage after a gig at the International. And right. I, got, I got my tape recorder out, but I don't know what happened to that interview. Whether I, I don't think I even worked for Sounds then. Uh, maybe I was just, you know, it's quite good having a tape recorder because people talk to you when you turn it on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people sometimes they show classic tragic shots of, of, like, war scenes or whatever, or, or like, and, and there'll be somebody smiling in it. And it's because yeah. if you get a camera out, people smile. Mm. And it's just, if you get a tape recorder out, people sell. <laughs> Particularly people in bands, they suddenly think they're like, you know, they should say something important and start talking. Yeah. Well, Mark was always good at that, wasn't he? Mark was a, you know, we'll probably get on to more of that, but he was, I, I imagine he was a... a a dream to interview. In some ways, I think it could be pretty awkward, but you're always going to get something good out of it, I think, weren't you? Oh, he was just brilliant to interview. He was just... I mean, he always seemed to like me um, until I won't put him in Loaded. And, uh, <laughs> but, but so he sort of... Um, he was great to interview. He was so... He, you yeah. know, some people were... I mean, especially at that time as well... <laughs> I was interviewing a lot of young bands and there were some people who could, who could just talk from the off. So it was always interviewing, good interviewing Mark, always good interviewing people like Sean Ryder and Paul Ryder and um, others just had nothing to say at all and it was it was awkward and painful, you know, yeah. so... You know, Mark so, saw interviews as like sort of an extension of his lyric writing sometimes, I think. He sort of, you know, they sort of weave the myth throughout his lyrics and then into interviews as well. You know, there was all that stuff about us recording in a cave and recording on an empty stage in a warehouse. I mean, it wasn't actually true, but it, it made for good copy. Oh, well, I always thought his grasp on reality was was in some ways absolutely immense and in other ways totally uh, disconnected. Genuous, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he never actually learned the correct word for mobile phone either, did he? <laughs> Portafone. <laughs> So you call it a portable phone. A portable phone. <laughs> Give him a ring on your portable phone, will you? Yeah. <laughs> so, is it true that the first time you wrote for the NME was Brockwell Park? Is that right? Yeah. That Brockwell Park gig. Yeah. That was, that... One, of the, that was one of the last ones I did with the fall. That Brockwell Park. Gig. Yeah, that was good. I remember Mark had like a uh, really. He had a shirt that looked like Spangles. <laughs> had a really weird, different toned green shirt on. And it looked like a sort of a pile, you know, sort of an over spangle. I think I put that in the review. I was so, 
I was selling fanzines on a fanzine store with Steve Lamack, who's now on Six Music, and mm. and our mate Richard Edwards, who'd brought us together. And we were having a real laugh. And uh, Stephen Wells, who was a poet called Seething Wells, and he, he wrote for the enemy under the name Susan Williams. He came, I, I knew him from Leeds, and he came up to me and said, have you been here all day? I said, yeah. It's been great. And he said, can you review all the bands that have been on so far? I went, yeah, of course I can. You know, he said, if I don't do it for the enemy, I'll get fired or something. So that was my first review. Just, but obviously, I'd been stood at the top of the hill with a megaphone and a pile of fanzines. I'd gone down to watch the fall. I remember that. And um, so that was lucky. But, um, yeah, that was my first ever review. And, uh, you know, when I was writing my book, it was it was that period of, you know, kind of when you're leaving school and you're just um, – a music, purely a music fan going to gigs. And then when I was turning 17, 18, actually getting to, to sort of get my first pieces written and getting to meet bands. And, you know, me and my mate used to blag backstage, you know, we, we met Jella Biafra and Henry Rollins. And um, I was always interested in the people that had come from other places, you know, and um, uh-huh. I was also, you know, just... I absolutely love music, and um, so key people. I just wanted to talk to. It wasn't. It wasn't like groupidom, or, or I wasn't in. I was never in awe of many people, um, but I was just intrigued to to see what went on beyond, particularly beyond the lyric writing. You know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Henry Rollins is a, it quite. It's quite intimidating, isn't he, from afar? But when you actually meet him. He's like. The nicest guy in the world. Yeah, it was quite frightening. Yeah, this was Black Flag era, and Henry yeah. had like thick, really thick curly hair, and he was. There were some punks, some some sort of local leads, discharge style fans having a go at him, because there was a nuclear. There was there's an American spy base up on the moors north of north of Leeds. All right, and they're having a go at them about the Americans were based up there, and. Um, I don't think it was quite, quite Henry Rollins' fault, though, was well, it? Was, you know, at that point, Black Flag weren't in charge of the American Yeah, so that, you know, that's. I guess that was really how I... It was an exciting time, you know. It was exciting getting my... Because when you start doing that stuff, you don't know if anyone's ever going to... Whatever you do creatively, when you start, you don't know if anyone's going to ever like it or not or whether anyone's going to ask you to do it again and... Um, so that was for me was one of the more exciting parts of Animal House. Revisiting yeah. that it must have been quite intimidating to go into the enemy in those days, though. I mean, it was quite a big thing, the enemy, wasn't it? Then, I mean, it's um, massive. Then, you know, if you're, you're talking about, you know, you got well, uh, Ian McDonald, the writers you'd been on there. I used to go in on this. I went on a school trip once. I, I knew one guy who worked on the enemy who you will remember the Redskins because it actually sounded a bit like. A cross between the four tops and the fall, yeah. You know, they had that sort of that fast rockabilly bass, uh, sort of beat, and um, I knew Chris, who was a singer of the Redskins. I'd met him on a C and D march outside that spy base in Menmoreville. Oh, and, right, okay. He used to, he was very encouraging, and um, he really liked something I wrote about the Redskins early on. And they put a quote from my fanzine on their first out al- on their only album. So I used to pop in and see him. And I remember going on a school trip once to Carnaby, and I went, I, I broke away from whatever we were supposed to be doing, going to see a player or museum or something. And I went off to um, 5 to 7 Carnaby Street, where the enemy was. I was amazed on a Saturday afternoon, the doors were shut. Yeah. 
that was a real eye opener for me because I thought that enemy writers would be like I was just, I mean, spending Saturdays lying on my bedroom floor, laying my fanzine out or just sitting around their office listening to music all day. Obviously, I mean, it's a job. So, yeah. Um, but no, I, ne- I didn't. I never felt intimidated. I never felt intimidated at all. You know, I thought. Well, who was there at the time? Was Nick Kent still there? Then? No, I, uh, this no. would be the mid eighties. So yeah, this yeah. would be about nineteen eighty three. Stuart McCauley was he there? He was there then, was he? Uh, no, no, Stuart. I, I, I found Stuart. I opened his envelopes, and Stuart Stuart joined in about probably late eighty seven when I was right. doing the lives pages. Um, I guess it would have been writers like Bieber Kopf, Chris Bond, uh, Don Watson, right. uh, maybe Morley still. I don't know. Adrian Thrills, Gavin Martin, they were there all the way through from punk to when I was there. Yeah. Um, Andy Gill. Oh, right, okay. I mean, it was still, it was still a, I mean, a great mag, a great paper then, wasn't it? I mean, it was still great writing in it. I mean, you know, it went off later on, but, but uh, yeah, there was still no, some I great mean, writing in it. What I wrote about in the book was it, it was, you know, the beauty of having you writing your own book. I'm sure you felt this when you're both writing about the four was you can just fucking write about whatever you want. And I, so yeah. no one had weirdly given, I've had a lot of success in them. Very few times I've ever been asked to talk about or write about magazines. And, um, so just writing about why I like the enemy and, and, and how unique, unique it was. I mean, it, it was so brittle and so aggressive in one hand and yet so enthusiastic about music in the other. And, and just to yeah. have both those things. And I asked, I rang Nick Logan up, who was the guy that hired, um, you know, the underground writers like Nick Kent and so on in the early yeah. 70s, Charles mm. Shaw Murray and all those guys, and yeah. uh, Tony Tyler. And I said, so Nick is the guy who really made the enemy what it became because before that it was like just news it was just like the news section or yeah you know know, it was just information press releases being rewritten and listings and things and um i said what gave you the idea to make it you know irreverent because he used to do things like private i do you know she put speech bubbles coming out of rock stars (laughs) (laughs) man he just straight away just said uh, monty python all right and um I thought that was interesting because I'd never heard that before. But people used to love writing in and slagging the enemy off. I mean, that's that's how I got noticed. I just I started just writing in and saying I can do better than this. And at that time, there were, there were you know, in the mid '80s, there was this massive network of fanzines all over the country, um, yeah. from Plymouth to East Kilbride, and you know, they were great. There were so many different personalities and so many different voices and some people could lay them out and they looked really good or some people's looked a bit dull but were really well written. And then you kind of like, we knew about bands way before NME did. So everybody talks about the C86. Mm. I was writing about those bands in circa 84. You know, they were like, and and so were the rest of the fanzine scene. And I think that was my frustration was... um, you know, I would pick up an enemy and, and I wouldn't know a lot of the bands in it because I think if you don't have an older brother or sister who's into music, you can only rely on your mates, older mates lending you records. That was it. You know, yeah. if, you, if you didn't have that much money and it was difficult to kind of get educated in, in music that had gone before. And I remember each week, you know, when I did my paper round, I used to do a milk round to get singles as well. 
you kind of had to make, I mean, the good thing was there was so much good music about in, in the late 80s, something in the late 70s, but you just had to make a choice. Do I buy a Cure single or do I buy a Stiff Little Fingers single or whatever, you know, and it was... Um, it was, so, a, the, the, it was that thing where every music you bought was new, wasn't it? No, no one was going back and buying Beach Boys albums, or it, or it seemed to me at the time, sort of eighties, you know, probably even till a bit later. You, it, the sort of the whole sort of mojo reverence to the past, which I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody of. It, it wasn't there. People, you, people used to buy new music, didn't they? I think totally, totally. But I think that was, you know, the Sex Pistols. That I mean, I was like eleven when I first saw the Sex Pistols on television. And um, I write about this in the book. They're on the local leads, you know, like Granada Reports, Look North, because mm-hmm. they were doing a benefit for the Fireman's concert. And this is at a time oh, yeah. when, you know, there were demonstrations against them. They got they got kicking off. They were getting kicked off record labels. They were getting attacked in the street. And a lot of that wasn't Malcolm McLaren's hype. That was a genuine reaction. Oh, yeah, yeah. These, you know, they get beaten up for having the wrong shoes on. Yeah, so they were, um, and seeing these two guys on, t- I think, I think it was John and John and Sid, and um, they looked like the Bass Street Kids, you know, but, <laughs> but like really, like uh, if the devil had made them, you know, I mean, they, they yeah. did. I remember being like, you know, just before my teens, seeing this on telly and thinking, these guys look great. And then, if you ever read an interview with them or anything, you know. Uh, Johnny Rotten was always talking about everything that had gone before was crap. Or that was that was the way the message was filtering down. Yeah. You heard the set off of them were cover versions, but yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you don't know that. You know, you didn't know. You know, I didn't know Victoria was a cover version until Mark told me. I thought I didn't know the King song. You know, Victoria or a new Ghost in My House was a cover version. Mm. But, um, you know, so. <laughs> Yeah, so that the importance of the enemy, along with John Peel, of communicating about new music. Well, that, yeah, that was, was it, really, wasn't it? That was yeah, the way yeah, of course, yeah. finding out. Was, I think I always think because you're about the same age as me, probably slightly younger. I was it was all right for people like Steve and Mark because when the the Pistols had started saying everything that had gone before was shite, they knew enough to know that that wasn't true. At, at my age, I believed them. <laughs> no, it was like year zero. It was like whole part yeah. of thing, you know. I mean, it, it. You know, I didn't. When I was at school, I liked sort of punk and new wave. And, you know, when I went to secondary school, really, that, that's what I'm talking about when I was 13. And um, but most of my mates were into things like Hawkwind, Black, yes. Sab- Black Sabbath, mm. uh, Led Zeppelin. But I'd been briefed <laughs> that this was all rubbish. Yes, we had a meeting and we all agreed that ELO were absolute shy. I remember the day completely. Can't You can't say that you like that kind of stuff. It was like that, it was like that, wasn't it? It was like, it seems like Pol Pot years ago. It was, it was interesting trying to go through, looking at my the, the singles I've still got and just seeing the transformation from ELO to uh, The Fall. You know, it was kind of unusual. I mean, the jam were... There was a period when good bands got into the charts. Yeah. Mm. And it was the punk period. You know, it was like loads and loads of people were buying those singles and they were getting into the charts. And then, you know, and then kind of like this. Yeah, there's shifting serious units as well, weren't it? I mean, it wasn't like getting in the charts. No, you had to sell a fair few to get in the charts in them days. Yeah, I mean, I think Squeeze Skull sold a million copies of Up the Junction and it only got to number two. Bloody and hell. It, mm. And if you remember as well about those times, anyone who's younger won't get their head around this, but you'd go into the charts, low down, and build up week by week by week, whereas 
this century, at the beginning of the century, you know, they would just they'd, they'd zoom straight in and then fall away. So uh, yeah. you used to go to Wool. I used to go to Woolworths and look at the. Um, that they had the they had the music week chart pulled out and stapled on the wall by their sil by their singles desk. You used to see your favourites, the undertones or the yeah. beat, whatever, going 68, 38, 16, 12. It was, it was exciting. Yeah. It was. So that's why that's the that's the title of Steve's book, The Big Midweek, because that was the fall were always big on the midweek chart, but by the time it came around to picking who was on top of the pops, it dropped down to like 75. <laughs> Is that why you called that? That's why it's called that, yeah. I always thought it might be something to do with like uh, working men's club talent night or something like that. <laughs> no, we were always we were always big midweek. <laughs> was, that your, was that your title, Steve? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. I thought of that years ago, and I thought if ever I'm gonna, if ever I'm gonna write a book, that's what I'm gonna call it. I mean, it's you know, it's tongue in cheek sort of thing, in a way. But did anybody else ever get to name songs in the fall? Craig, a couple of times, a few times. Okay. Oh, don't Very think rarely. anybody else. Do you, Paul? I can't. can't don't think so. I think I, I was going to say Craig would be the only one where it stuck. I think. Yeah. Because uh, he, he uh, Total's turns. That was his name well, as well. As well, I think. I think he came up with that. But no, I don't. Don't think so. I don't. I think my always we because we used to have our own titles like Container Drivers was called Weaver Bird. Right up, right up until Mark oh, yeah. words on it. What was it called? Weaver Bird? Yeah. yeah. The one, it was an instrumental that Mark Riley wrote. It was called Weaver Bird. Let's do that one, Weaver Bird. Okay. we were playing it for a while. <laughs> but uh, obviously once Mark took it over, there was no chance. <laughs> you recognise the story that about my new house? Yes. <laughs> I can believe I that. Really laugh. Craig was, I'll tell this story. People, haven't, people obviously, hopefully they'll read the book off the back of it, but... Craig told me that he'd written a, a song that he thought was brilliant and he really liked the riff and everything and he was he thought it was going to be a really intense, serious, great fall song. And he started playing it in rehearsals and Mark, Mark started shouting, I've got a new house! Have you seen my house? That was the thing a lot of the time with the fall. It ne- they never turned out how you thought they were going to. Was it, was it fun being in the fall? It depends on your definition. This sounds a ridiculous thing to say. It depends on your yeah. definition of fun, of fun, I suppose. Early, early on, I know, I know yeah. you know, the, uh, it probably wasn't much fun in the later years, but was it Was it ever fun? I think fun's probably the wrong word. It was fun's very the wrong word, yeah. It's always yeah. kind of, I don't know if satisfying is the right word. You, you know, know you always felt like you're doing something good. Why did Why did you never do any old songs? Was that just because Mark didn't know the words? No, we we just had that thing about moving on, moving on, but and always producing. Uh, as people probably know, by the time the album that we'd just done had come out, we'd already had half a new, half a dozen new songs for the next one. Yeah. So, one no, it was just his thing to keep producing. One of the best songs I ever saw, one of the best sets I ever saw, and, in fact, it it would be a contender for the best gig overall I ever saw was the Festival of the Tenth Summer. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because the Fall and the and the Smiths were both in a really good spot with the albums mm. that had just come out. and um, You had a great drummer. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> 
I was gone by then. I think that's yeah. what, I think what he's alluding to there is the fact that yeah. I was gone. It well, was I just, was at that gig. It was a great gig because New Order were on as well. They were fantastic, weren't it? It was a yeah, brilliant was a great gig. Day, yeah. It was yeah. a brilliant day and it was a brilliant gig. And um, that's the period I really love of, of the fall. And I guess because I was around a little bit. Mm. Um, but that sort of mid-period when it was... Um, I can't remember who was on drums. I guess it was Carl or somebody. But um, Bricks, Steve, Craig, Mark, that sort of... Um, yeah, just that, that sort of period. When it went a bit poppy and then it got a little bit more intense, that was that was, that was was probably my favourite period. Right, yeah, so basically what you're saying is the pit just after I left, James, is basically... <laughs> yeah, but you know what? Do <laughs> you know what I think about when I think about two drummers? I just think about the bands that have had two drummers. Yeah. Said, Do you know who's got two drummers at the moment? Who? Pet Shop Boys. Get over. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching him in Brooklyn two weeks ago. I was thinking, this is like the fall. Adam and the Ants and Shawaddy Waddy. Shawaddy Waddy always had two drummers, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. Shawaddy Waddy had, had the best. The drum, drummer's got the best name of anyone in a band. Romeo, Romeo Challenger. Challenger. Yeah. Brilliant. Romeo Challenger. It's a great name, isn't it? It could be anything. Just- so was that that New Order and the Pet Shop Boys tour that yeah, you saw? Yeah, what happens is after about three of the songs, the uh, this sort of screen goes up and they've got three musicians at the back. And uh, there's just one bit in it where there's two of them playing the drums at the same time. They've obviously not got a, a full old-fashioned set like you guys have. That, you know, they're using like whatever it is that you call them, you know, electronic drums. But um, it did remind me of that. It was good. Wow. I think he had two drummers, didn't he? Zig Zig Sputnik, they had two drummers. Really? Both, both mm. miming, I think, yeah. <laughs> both miming to a Casio keyboard. <laughs> but, I mean, it's a great thing to do, that two drummers thing. I mean, it's 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 it takes a bit of work, but that was my favourite time in the fall was the two drummers, by far, I think. Especially with Carl. I'm, I'm sure you must have met Carl, did you? I've never met him, I don't think. I thought it was weird when Dave Simpson wrote his book, because... <clears throat> I asked Richard Do you not know meet Carl, no? Do- I don't think I've ever met Carl. Um, <laughs> I think the uh, – I met. you know what, I might have met him. But I don't, when, when we did the play, Steve, when I, I had the tiny part in Hey Luciani, mm. it was Simon Wollstonecroft was in the band then. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. He wasn't around then. No, he wasn't. No disrespect, uh, Paul, but my experience of when I was meeting bands was it was usually the singer or the songwriter who wanted to talk to the writers. None taken. Why would you want to speak to the drummer? <laughs> normally suspicious of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just in my experience, most of the drummers didn't really have much time for any of it. They're just like hitting the hitting the drums, mm-hmm. then hitting yeah. the rider, You know, it was. Um, <laughs> So what about the what about the play then? What did what was your yeah, take? I was, on I was coming to that. Coming to play. <laughs> so you just asked Mark if you could be in it, and he said yes. Is that right? Yeah, I interviewed him in John Leonard's flat. Him and Bricks for sounds it must have been, and I guess it was about the play. I must have been talking to him, doing a little news story for sounds about the play. And your then manager John Leonard had a flat in Maida Vale, and not Maida Vale, uh, St John's Wood. And it's quite posh. Over the- struggling, struggling, was he? Yeah. <laughs> um, you wonder about it. I, well, I don't know. I always thought he seemed like a nice guy, John. But um, and um, we just did the interview, and then 
I'd only just moved to London, you know, and I was I was sort of once I was on Sounds and Enemy, we used to go to gigs every night. I was amazed when I found out I could get in for for free at every gig I wanted to go to. So I used to go to two or three a night, and um, I didn't know that many people, and. Uh, and just said, can I be in the play? And he was like, yeah, no problem. I need a Vatican announcer. <laughs> so we, do you remember, Steve, there wasn't that much rehearsal, was there? Maybe like three or four days. It, well, I was going to say, yeah, you're the reason I got a speaking part in it, believe it or not. <laughs> really? What I, we- I was uh, <laughs> just going to be the Pope at the end and just come on and wave and not say anything. Yeah. And then... I filled in for you at a couple of rehearsals, and I was reading your lines out as you, you know, as you, yeah. when you were going to make it. And uh, I don't know for some reason, Mark got it into his head that I could talk, and he wrote me a speaking part. Were <laughs> you, were you really, when he when he said, "Steve, you're going to be the Pope," at what point did he tell you one, you're going to die, and two, there's no lines? <laughs> <laughs> I was quite happy with the no lines, but yeah. You remember, <laughs> it was a mad thing, though, wasn't it? I don't know. It was... Do you know what? The only time I've ever seen Mark slightly flawed was um, somebody told us that Samuel Beckett was came to see the play one night. And, Billy White, and his wife, yeah. Billy Whitelaw, had been, was she in A Taste of Honey? Yeah. She was in a few of those classic kitchen scenes. Oh, wow, yeah. Which he must have seen when he was a kid and... Um, I can remember somebody coming backstage and said, fucking hell, Samuel Beckett's out the front. And I remember just looking, I, I, I mean, he's it, it obviously very well read, wasn't he? And I was, I, I remember looking at him and thinking, I mean, I didn't really know Samuel Beckett was. I knew he was a playwright, but I didn't know he was as legendary and, you know, mm-hmm. as much mystique as, uh, as he had. And he just looked slightly stunned for a minute. I don't even know if it was true. I don't. I did look in later life to see if there's any reference to it, but there's actually very, lit, very little reference to Hey Luciani the play at all anywhere. There is. There's nothing, is there? Not of it, is there? No. Bizarrely. Mm. Yeah, weird, weird. But I really thought him. somebody. You just thought some. I'm sure somebody filmed it. I don't know what's happened to it, but. There's a clip of a tiny bit of it. Yeah. What amazed me, though, and I think this was um, one of the... Uh, this is probably the closest insight I got into what it might, what went on in Mark's head was the, the actors were all out the front and he just... We were kind of stood by the stage giggling a bit and uh, he gave me that megaphone he used to sing through sometimes and he showed me all these buttons on the back of it and um, he said, press these and just disrupt them. Just do whatever you want. Bloody <laughs> hell. Like, you know, there was, but the act, Richard Hawley was an actor. He was pretty cool. I, I, he went on to be in a lot of things. Mm. But, but a couple of the other actors, he were quite serious and were getting a little bit wound up by Mark's sort of dysfunction. Yeah, Trevor, the. Uh... Yeah, he was Australian. Trevor, he, he yeah. got a little bit, he wanted to do a proper play. And Mark, I think, obviously, like, moving the uh, structure around a bit. <laughs> remember he changed the structure of some of the play and the songs, like you're just changing the set list. It sounds like hell. It sounds like the most stressful it, thing. It is amazing it ever got, we ever did 20 nights of it, really. It is. Paul, it was great. It, it was, was <laughs> Being 19 or 20 or whatever I was. Yeah, I'm sure, yeah. And also, yeah. like, 
Simon, Craig and Steve had their own dressing room. And I, I just used to be in there with Mark and Bricks. And then there was another room with Michael Clark, Lana Palay and Lee Bowery. And Lee would be running up and down the backstage area. And I mean, it was there was no sort of... Um, I don't remember Mark being... I mean, you obviously had obviously very different experiences of him, but I, he just seemed to be enjoying it, you know. He'd just sit in that room with Bricks and I'd be in there chatting and... Um, I, I don't know. I guess he liked me because I was fucking rude as he was at times. <laughs> I, I had no filters either back then, so it, it was kind of good just hanging out, you know. And, um, yeah. and I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong; it must have been a great experience, but it must have been terrifying, wasn't it? No, See? I was. Do you know what? I was quite fearless then. You know, I wasn't. Wasn't. I was just enjoying being around him. And also, I remember one time um, I kept falling because I would go, I'd do that play, and then I'd go off to a gig or a club, and then stay up late writing whatever to write, and then go into sounds and hand the article in the next day. So I was doing the music writing and appearing. You know, not that I had to do much, but obviously we had to finish at like eleven o'clock or something. And yeah. I was, I kept falling asleep on the district line and going past where I had to get off. <laughs> <laughs> and Mark said, don't worry about that. And somebody who was part of the road crew with corkscrew hair, I won't mention it, um, he arrived with this, what looked like pink bath salts. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> and it obviously was amphetamine, not not bath salts. And uh, I fucking didn't sleep for about three days after that. <laughs> and I remember Mark liked it so much, he made this, this, this person go back go back down to Southampton where he got it from and get some more. So it was just, I mean, Michael Clark was a brilliant talent. and Amazing, yeah. Yeah, I Lee, mean, Lee Barry looked amazing when he had all his gear on, but he was just like a normal bloke when he had his normal clothes on. Um, so I think for me as a young, I mean, I, was, I didn't even shave at this point. I don't think I had a shirt with a collar on. You know, <laughs> I probably only had about four items of clothing that I'd moved to London with and... Um, just, I was living on a bed, which was a mattress on two pallets in a, <laughs> in a flat in the East End, you know, working at, uh, like a council flat, you know, council flat, these little, uh, I don't know what they're called, but there's a lot of them all over London. They're kind of four stories, little uh, red brick yeah. custom flats. Mm. And, um, Probably worth a million quid now. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> no, but, you know, the... We had a bath. I mean, I don't want to get all, oh, it was so weird in the old days, but the bath was in the kitchen of this flat and you pulled the, you pulled this wooden plank down and covered it and that's where you'd keep all your food or your... My mate, Tony Crean, it was his flat and if you wanted a bath, you had to take all the, like, the frying pan and the, you know, everything off. Consequently, we didn't have a lot of baths. Now, Tony would come in and start making his breakfast. <laughs> sitting there Bloody and yeah. chatting to your mate about the football results or what gig you were going to or whatever. But no, that, that is it. So, so to be just a young guy just starting out in London and going and spending 20 nights with pretty much one of my favourite bands was... Because you played every night, didn't you, Steve? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, was, there was quite a few songs weaved in and out of it, yeah. Yeah, so it was it was good. And then, then the next thing I remember was coming over to um, Holland for that Royal Command performance of... Of, um, of the ballet. 
Yeah, what I'm was? Curious Orange. Yeah, I'm Curious Orange. Same thing. Didn't sleep all night. Got lost walking around the town, walking yeah. around Amsterdam. But that that genuinely was an amazing looking, you know, performance and oh, stage yeah. set. Bricks sitting playing the guitar on top of that huge hamburger. Mm-hmm. It looked absolutely amazing. And I think, did you do it in Scotland for a bit? We did. We did it three places. We did a couple of nights in Amsterdam, like you say, and then we did three nights in Edinburgh. And then we did the same again, a run at Saddler's Wells of about 25 dates. Yeah, it was, I mean, people would not remember that. There was was a thing recently about Michael Clark a couple of years ago in the Barbican Centre in London, and he had some of the, he had a lot of stills from it and some of the music and some footage, and it was, I walked into that. Just the exhibition, yeah. Yeah, but I wasn't expecting to see it, and it kind of Mm. brought it all back, it was... Hmm. See, there's no full footage of that either, is there? There's not loads of that either, no. No. Yeah. That's, that's, I find that really strange. The, the... It's, it's like vampires and horses. <laughs> it's like if somebody brings a camera near Mark for a live theatrical event, it <laughs> just, <laughs> just gets wiped off. <laughs> this is like me interviewing you, but like, I haven't talked about the fall for a long time, really, and I oh. they were really... Um, I used to spend ages listening to them. I really, I really love the band. And the, um, but what I wanted to know is, you, did you all meet him when you were you just fans, or did any of you know him from school? No, we were just fans. I know this. This has kind of got lost in the in the depths of time. What, how and when? Because we've been through it with Mark and Craig, haven't we, Paul? Yeah. Uh, Mark was first. Mark, Mark was first. Yeah. But you, I know in your book, which, by the way, is one of the best ones I've read on, on the fall, because obviously because you were in there, but the, um, you know, when you, I can I can picture that when you start to be roadies and things or help them out, but who, who knew Mark when he was at school? Martin Brammer? Yeah. Yeah. And, and Tony Friel. So the, basically the original kind of... And what did so they the, say about him in class? <laughs> I, don't <know. laughs> I don't know. It's a weird one, isn't it? Because... It must. Um, it's, I think it's Martin. The, the, the way he must have changed from being just a mate and an equal, and then then it's all it's got transformed into Mark's band. Yeah, it must have been. It must have been a bit weird that for Martin. I think. I don't, I don't know if they did go to the same school, did they? <laughs> Did they not? Didn't Mark, oh, no, no, they didn't. No, that's right. Um, no, Mark Martin, went to the grammar school, didn't yeah, he? And then... Martin knew. Martin and Tony Friel met Mark because. One of them was going out with Mark's sister, I think. So I don't think anybody in the fall was ever at school with Mark. But it was like... He told me a little bit about being at school one time. I don't know if this was... In, I mean, I, I did spend a lot of time just hanging out with him. Sometimes he'd come and stay with me in London or I'd go up and stay in um, Presswich with him and Bricks. And um, he told me the song that he really loved when he was a kid, which... Weirdly, I really, I've, you know, as a kid, a song I remember from when I was really young was that John Fred and the Playboy band, Judy in Disguise. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He, Great said, song. he said, everybody else, he said, everyone else in the class loved the Beatles, but I like that. Me and this Divvy kid. <laughs> <laughs> there, was some, there was somebody who had what you'd now call learning difficulties. He said, we were the only ones who liked that song. But he was, um, but I think that was when he was at primary school or something he was talking about, or right. maybe a little bit older. But I find that whole period quite curious as to what he must have been, what he must have been like as a as a as a team. I mean, was yeah. he the same as he is? Was he was when we knew him? 
Well, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I've got. I don't. I obviously years after he's, when he was a kid, I didn't know him. But it's difficult to say what he was really like and what he wanted people to think he was like. Aren't necessarily the same thing, are they? When he talks about his school days. Yeah, well, I don't know. I don't know. You, you must you... have caught him in his more natural moments when you were like staying in Presswich and. He was very relaxed about me. When people found yeah. out that I knew him, they were like, oh, what was it like? And it, I'll tell you one thing, I've put, I put this in the book, was you always, my mum, as, as you know from the book, was, wasn't well sometimes. Mm-hmm. You always asked how she was. Every time we got in or out of a cab, it'd be very polite. Any time we're in a restaurant, used to like eating dal soup. <laughs> that was what I remember him, him eating dal soup and he was ahead of, his, ahead of his time even then <laughs> what's that he was ahead of his time yeah, yeah was, well I didn't know if it was because like the third cheapest thing on the menu or it was something <laughs> to do with his, with his other more um, narcotic diet you know whether it was it went well with that but um, <laughs> he was he was always very very polite uh, to people who would be doing a you know a a proper job, like a, a, somebody yeah. who's a waiter or a tax driver or somebody who'd help you, you know, somebody at a station or something like that. And, um, you know, I wasn't always that polite, so I, I clocked that and took notice of what of what mm. was going on there. Yeah. yeah he, um, he always used to take his glasses back to the bar when he'd finished his pint and fight him. Yeah, you well, know what this, what's really strange is, I don't know if you've got any sort of time plan on the discussion, but the last time I saw him was really, really weird because what happened with me is I spent a, I spent a lot of time writing about the fall and featuring Mark in the NME. I remember another writer coming up to me one day and go, not the fall on the cover again. I said, well, the sales are good and he's great, you know, and he looks good. So, yeah, the fall on the cover again. But then after I left NME, I don't know if it was his drinking had got worse, but he seemed to become a bit like just the sort of mad old bloke in the pub. Mm. There were a couple of interviews where it just seemed like they weren't talking about the lyrics. They weren't really getting his more intelligent worldview, and he was becoming not politically reactionary, but just reactionary within the interview. And it was, I thought, you know, as a mate, I thought he was starting to get in a bit of a mess. Mm. And, um, but that was his stuff and I didn't want Loaded to be like the enemy so there was a, a kind of thought enemy we could put any band in that we liked I mean put the bands that we really liked in again and again and again I kind of felt like although Loaded had a load of music in it I just I didn't want to put the fall in just for the sake of having them in like we would have done at the enemy you know like, like it was a hardy perennial you know it was yeah. mm. it was um he well, had a kind of tone, didn't it, the loaded? He wrote about it in a song. He wrote about it in a song. <laughs> he started calling me J-Loaded Brown. And he was, upset. <laughs> he was upset. And then I went to see him one night after they had, hadn't seen him for a couple of years. He starts going on about me in the middle of a set. About me. I didn't realise he's going, he's saying, won't have me in his magazine. And now he's on the guest list. I thought he's about me. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then anyway, so like, I didn't see him so much, and then. And did, yes, what, did he did he take objection to not being loaded then? Or yeah, he did. He was upset about it. People like Tony Machilides, I think, would ring me and say, and I'd say, I don't want to do it because I just I felt like the music um, 
and his personality were becoming different things, you know, and he just seemed to be mm. being lined up as a renter quote. And I thought he was starting to maybe live up to that a little bit. Whereas when I discovered The Fall, I genuinely think Mark's songwriting was, was genius. I think he had an amazing ability to, to see through the bullshit and, and draw parallels with what he knew about history and how well read he was. And for him just to become like some sort of fucking cross between Wyndham Lewis and Alf Garnet. Yeah. <laughs> it was a bit beneath him. And um, so it was sort of weird. It was weird like that. And um, I, anyway. would, see, I, w- I wouldn't have thought he'd have loaded it would have been his cup of tea anyway, no. to be honest. Well, whatever. But the thing with the um, the last time I saw him was, was at this party for somebody who was working on a TV show or something. And uh, someone came in and it was in Brick Lane. It was in a bar in Brick Lane, London, where the, all the Indian restaurants are. And somebody came in and said, hey, the fall are playing across the road. So me and my mate left this party and tried to get in the front door. And it was about like 20 past 10. And um, the bouncer wouldn't let us in, and we're trying to negotiate getting in because it's near the end of the set. So we went through this. It was a venue called 93 Feet East, and they've they've got a big archway that takes you into the car park at the back. So we went through there, and the, the window to the bogs was open. So me and my mate, we're in our 40s. What year? Yeah, I was going to say, what year was this? None of you guys were in it. It was people no. with beards and plaid shirts. Oh, yeah. Oh, the, the dudes. The American guys. Yeah. I don't know what was going on, but it didn't really even sound much like the fall to me. And um, we actually, me and my mate Johnny, we dive through the window. <laughs> like, genuinely. You know, sometimes people say, oh, we jump through a window, whatever. We did fucking dive through it and fell <laughs> the floor. Uh, just fell on the floor of the, the, the bogs and then went into the gig. And uh, we met Paul Morley's sister, who's a filmmaker. Yeah, Carol. And her mate, who was... Yeah, and her and a friend who was an actress, an actor, and as soon as the gig finished, I thought I'm going to go and say hello, and I went backstage. There was no one else there. The band was still playing, and Mark looked at me and he was really shocked, but he smiled. He had a big smile on his face. He went, "All right," I went, "All right, how are you?" But do you know what really shocked me was he seemed totally sober. And I don't think I'd ever seen him sober since the daytimes when I'd have been with him in, you know, the late 80s. And it was it was like a different person. Anyway, and I'm really glad that that was, that was yeah. my last memory of meeting him because there was yeah. something, you know, Bricks told me that she popped in to see him once in Manchester and he he was not in a good way. And there were stories, weren't there, of him being in a bad state and, mm. you know, a, a backstage at festivals and stuff. And... Um, I was surprised that more people didn't, I guess maybe because I got sober myself, that more people didn't kind of comment on what a state he was getting into. But anyway, so that was, that was, I, was I was pleased. That was, that's my last memory of, of yeah, him. I've not seen him for a long time. And he was really shocked to see me. I said, and, and he was really pleased and I was pleased to see him. That was the 11th of September, 2006, that, James, that was. I've just looked it up. <laughs> okay, so I just, I, just, I, just, well, I was just turned 40. Yeah. Still climbing through windows. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even want to get locked out. <laughs> I don't yeah, think I'd fit to windows. It was exciting because it was the sort of thing I would have done. Like, I write in the book about blagging into to gigs, you know, picking up a merchandising box. 
with, with <laughs> to get into the monochrome set at Leeds University or uh, the Rolling Stones played in Leeds in the early about 1980 something like 82 81 something like that and um big gig in in uh, Roundy Park in Leeds and it was one of those things where people went to it regardless of if they had tickets or not because it was a huge event I yeah. went there without a ticket. It was right on the other side of, of the city from where I lived. Awful. And- I saw you too there. Awful place to see a band, as I recall. What, Roundy Park? Yeah. Well, well, it might have been because it was you too, but I did like you too. So uh, I, I, th- I remember thinking this is a terrible place to see. Well, well, I, don't like, I don't like outdoor gigs anyway. So You saw you too there? Yeah. Were you playing with them or...? Just no, no, no. I, I bought okay. a ticket. <laughs> yeah, when it was a sort of amphitheatre, isn't it? On, yeah. the, on the, on the, I used to go sledging down that hill. But anyway, just as I got to the got to the event and there was got to the gig and there was this massive wooden fence, you know, the size of a double decker bus. And I was just looking at it thinking, there's no one's even going to be able to jump over that. And then it opened up, and this guys, these two guys in orange vests walked in with a with a you know, a police barrier, crowd control barrier. And this stranger and I, our eyes just met and we saw this other barrier. We just picked it up and walked in. <laughs> we, went, we went in behind these other guys. Security just Fantastic. let us through and that was it. I got to see the stones. You know, that was when Mick was dressing like a sort of American, very skinny American footballer. Uh, oh, yes, hat. yeah. And um, so it was a lot, you know, the, the, this, as you say, it was a, the, they were a long, long away from where I was stood. But, um, yeah, the one where Keith Richards smacked a block over there with the guitars, didn't? No, I don't that think, same tour. I think that was in America. We, was it? we had that as a great moment in life in one of our columns in Loaded. Yeah. He, he, when he interviewed, when he was interviewed about that after the gig, he said, "I chopped the mother down." <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't come onto my turf. Well, I'm trying to do my gig. If you yeah. come to me, I'm going to chop the mother down. What a yeah. what a line that is. <laughs> We've watched that frequently, haven't you? Yeah, hell yes. <laughs> did, did the fall ever listen to music collectively in the van? Yeah. If you were brave enough. We what, did. What, what would it have been? Did you have to get the approval? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you were lucky, you didn't I, 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 take it out like a set machine and throw it out the window sometime. <laughs> What, what would we have in? What would, we, what would we have on? I can't remember. Can you? Well, there was there was that whole thing where he had them truck driver cassettes, didn't he? he used to yeah, play them a lot. What was that? He used to play them. He used to get them. You know, the truck stops. You buy like them sort of Johnny Paycheck and that kind of thing. Sort of. Country. Oh yeah, like old rockabilly and uh, yeah, a lot of that. Is that yeah. where he got songs like White Lightning from? Probably, yeah, probably. Well, that um. Thingy, um, the what the there wasn't in the van, but the one that got passed around the band when I was in and more was the the Kenny Everett one, the worst Kenny Everett, of yeah. What, yeah, the Kenny Everett tape. Yeah. It was an album, the worst the worst records of all time. It was, and it had uh, Surfing Bird on by uh, by the Kings, not by the Kingsmen. It was Surfing Bird by I can't remember the the Cramps did it later it's on. And it had, yeah, yeah, yeah. This pullover. <laughs> the Ramones always encored with that. Yeah, mm. yeah, uh, and it had um, this thing called Transfusion by Nervous Norvus. I love that. Transfusion, yeah. Transfusion. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's, uh, he nicked a bit of that for Roll Trumbull, but that, that one, for some reason, sticks in my mind that everybody had a, had a turn with that. It was a great album, that. Yeah, so so sort of old American rockabilly. And yeah, yeah. Pebbles, kind of... pebbles, punk, that yeah. sort of yeah. yeah. Okay, but what about anything unusual? There was... 
What, to listen to... Well, my, well, I, I never got on with Captain Beefheart. That was always massive. Mark mm. loved Captain Beefheart and Mark Riley and Craig. And they Frank were, Zappa, yeah. And Frank Zappa. I couldn't be doing with it. Me, no. certainly not tooling down the motorway. I don't want to be listening to that, thanks really much. Yeah, you want something less... Um, <laughs> something a bit... I don't know. You see, I was only a young kid. I tried to put the clash on once. Do you think I'd, I, I, I... It didn't go down very well. I remember that. What do you say? You did get the clash on. I, I tried. I mean, I think Mark had a bit of a sneaking like for the clash. He did. He didn't... I, I, I don't think he thought much of uh, Joe Strummer's lyrics at times, but I remember him saying, um, know your rights, saying that's yeah. a fantastic record. That, I, I mean, he said the words are awful, but the, the music's absolutely fantastic. Because that's like a rockabilly thing. Well, that's it, yeah. It's the it's the rockabilly sound, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's quite late clash as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. 80, 82, yeah. It is. That's, that's that, interesting. That was what I was going to say about the clash before when you were talking about the Redskins. Um, there yeah. was, that, was that quote that they, they, what was it? They walk like the clash and sing like the Supremes. Something uh, like he, that. Yeah, and Ian said, they might walk like fucking Top of Redden, but they don't sing like the Supreme. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? When, when, one time I did interview Mark, uh, maybe for the. We did an we did a cover for the NME around the time of Hit the North, and it was great actually. You'd you'd have liked it because Steve Pike made Mark stand in a stream. It was great. Oh, no. <laughs> and um, Pike, Pike is a little, you know, got a real lot of uh, personality, and he, he he just runs a bar down in New Orleans now. But he was a, Steve's a great guy and a really good photographer. You'll you'll know the shot. It was Mark Bricks and Marsha, and it was very dark. And he just heads. But Steve and I went up in Steve's old Jag, and he on the way in. He saw these uh, cooling towers, and I think it was. Oh, a I remember it, yeah. The old, uh, yeah, I remember the cover. Yeah, yeah. and and so he, it was dark at night, and he had yeah. one light. I had to hold the light, and he, and he got he got the three of them to sort of stand halfway between this rock wall, and there was a you know those sort of little uh, streams that run down the side of country hills. Mm. You know, the, there's ditches. The di- when ditches yeah. look, they were stood in that. It was it was a, it was fucking hilarious because it was, <laughs> I mean Mark obviously wanted to be on the cover of the enemy again and he was going uh, come on Steve I'm getting my ankles wet <laughs> he was like, <laughs> and moaning and um, it was it was good but when I interviewed him there I did say to him what other songwriters that are contemporaries do you, do you like or do you respect and it was um, Ian McCulloch and Kevin Rowland were the, right. were the two that that um, had stood out. Yeah, I've never heard him say anything nice about uh, Ian McCulloch, really. Certainly, but I, I know he had a bit. Of, he, really, he had a sort of a thing with Dexys. I think he was he was kind of fascinated with Dexys because I um, I remember you know because Live Dream with Casino Soul and that kind of thing was all kind of about the Dexys audience, you know. So I think yeah. I think he really, but he struggled sometimes to say when he likes stuff because um, yeah, it wasn't he was a weakness. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's the one who got us into Dexes. He was a big yeah. fan of Gino, but he wasn't keen on the later. You know the. But when they changed the image, the the two right, eight, but yeah, he was a big fan of early, the early first album. I know that. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was. Yeah, and that's interesting for me. That's interesting because when I first moved to Manchester. That's, that album is what I listen to more than anything in terms of albums that had just come before. My mate Greg, who was the uh, the guitarist in Big Flame, he had he had that first record, that first X's album, and I remember listening to it for hours and hours on end. Yeah. And that was that was pretty much the same time when you guys were doing things like Cruisers Creek, Lay of the Land, you know that. Yeah. 
but they were both your sort of songs, weren't they, Steve? Yeah, Heavy yeah. Bass, yeah, bass, yeah. Sort of lead yeah. songs, and um, yeah, you know, one of the things I liked when I moved to Manchester was that, you know, I, I was I was going out with this girl who lived in the Crescents in Hume, and I was living just out further out where I said, but you would see. You'd see bat. You'd see people in bands that were much bigger than the level of bands in, in Leeds. The only band that really made it big were the Sisters of Mercy, and you'd see those guys sort of hanging around the pub. But I remember seeing um, Carl in his long leather coat. He had a fucking sword under it. I wouldn't be at all surprised. Yeah, <laughs> I did know some. I knew that band, the Weeds, a little bit. And, oh yeah, and, well, that was Simon was in the Weeds. Simon, Simon yeah. was yeah. I kind of I knew Andrew a little bit, and um, well, we went I, to school with Andrew. He's like a friend of the family. His family, we all went to the same primary school. Yeah, and um, well, Craig had a he had a summer, he had a sword under his not Craig. Um, oh. He had a long sword under his long coat. <laughs> we stopped, and he, so actually, I have met him. Yeah, I remember meeting him when he had a sword under his coat. But he said, "Oh." He was just really paranoid. I don't know. Maybe he thought Mark was going to challenge him to a duel or something. <laughs> I, don't know. I think I that was a I suspect it was more likely that he was going to somewhere to sell the sword. Probably okay. more like. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think we've re- we've reached our time there, James. Oh, there was one more thing I was going to ask just before yeah. we wrap up is about that legendary interview with Mark yeah. and Nick Cave and Shane McGowan. Of course. Of course. Yeah. 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 What was that like? Um. Really interesting. I, Sean O'Hagan knew um, Shane. I knew Mark, and uh, Bledon Butcher, the photographer, knew Nick. And our boss Alan Lewis was always talking about getting different people together to talk and be recorded. Mm. And, and I, I think that just originated with us saying, "I don't think it was any one person's idea." I think we were just talking about what would be the ultimate enemy, you know, uh, connection of different people. And, you know, my sort of contacts were like Mark and Strummer, really. When, whenever anything had to do with the fall or the, or the clash or, 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 or anything like that, I would have to call either of those. And so we just each of us asked, asked them, and they were all up for it. So I guess it was a mutual respect. I know that Nick and Mark knew each other. The birthday party and the fall must have played together. Yeah, that's yeah. 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 And yeah. Um, so we got there, but Sean O'Hagan, who bought... Shane only told me last year that Shane was on acid because he was quite nervous of doing it. <laughs> and so he he was he was on acid. There, then, there is a logic there that if you're nervous of doing something, yeah, don't then, take acid. <laughs> and all, all three of them are just so unique and such good, yeah. particularly good lyricists. And um, Nick had just come out of rehab. Mm. And I actually rang my girlfriend up, who's flat. They shot the they shot the uh, the photo session, and the one that went on the cover was from the Montague Arms down near Deptford, which was a strange Gothic pub. And we all just sat around talking. I've got the tape somewhere, and um, but you know what? They played together. Yeah. There was this weird little basic setup of a little Casio, a drum kit, and. I can't remember who got behind the drums and who played the keyboard, but Mark found this screaming Jay Hawkins long, like it was like a broom handle covered in uh, beer lids that had been nailed on, like a really tall piece of um, percussion. And he was banging it and singing. I've got a tape of that as well. Have you? 
And then do you know, I was such a bad interviewer then. I never listened to anything I ever did, but I've got a box somewhere of tapes. And um, so that was interesting, seeing the three of them on stage. And then we went back because we needed a lot. We needed, Bledingley needed a lighter room. It was too dark, the pub. So we went to my girlfriend's brother's flat where we, Julie and I lived in Camberwell. And we had this big subterranean flat and a white-walled kitchen. And and so the other shots that were inside were shot in there. But I called her and I said, "What?" because I thought she might have been a, a more reliable witness. And I said, what was it like well, that day when we all came back? And she said, oh, God, it was, not, you know, it was insane. He said, you, me. So there was me, Mark. Shane and Sean, she said, you all in the living room shouting and taking speed. <laughs> and, and me and me and Bledin, she, her dad was Australian, so me me and Bledin and Nick just sat in the kitchen having a cup of tea, quietly talking about Australia. <laughs> it's quite, it just quite interesting, you know, like hearing... What I do remember is Shane nicked my, um, my copy of, of, of Nick's novel, And the Ass Saw the Angel, and then... Mark stayed at ours that night. He used to come to that flat a few times. And uh, it was a great day, but I genuinely, you know, you met so many interesting people at the enemy. I didn't, I mean, just last year, somebody put that up on Facebook. Or I think it's, I think it's the interview is on Rock's Back Pages and The Quietus. I think they've both republished it. And I saw some people discussing it on Facebook. Somebody, you know, copied me in. And they said, that's James Brown, he was there. And it was, and it's pretty bizarre, I think, that 26 or, you know, 28 years on or whatever it was, I don't know how long ago it was, maybe, would have been 1989 or something like that. Mm. That that people are, so 23 years, people are still talking about it. Um, 33 years. Is it 33 years? (laughs) Yeah. 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 No, I am surprised at that a lot, I have to say. Yeah, you know what? There's there's a couple of shots that Blevin took just of us talking. I'm gutted because I'm just like, you know, somebody's head's in the way of my head. So you can see the other four. <laughs> but we, but Sean and I would occasionally ask questions, and then after a while they just went off. And you know what Mark's like? He was just one minute he'd be being really respectful and interesting and and interested. You know, he would he would yeah. be having proper. He would be listening to what they were saying, and the next minute he'd just be like. Bullying them, he was yeah. just, just picking at them and trying to unsettle them, and um, so it was. It was good though, you know. I mean, it didn't. Yeah, yeah. It was. I mean, they were. They were all sort of. Particularly, Mark was trying to hold his ground, really, and not uh, it, that thing you said about he didn't like. He didn't like to publicly admit publicly admit what he liked. I think he liked that sort of um, to have his guard up, didn't he? Not let people yeah. in. Mm. too much but um, I guess I was I mean mean, that one the the three of them are all sort of massively culturally important now aren't they looking back I mean like you say it was 38 years ago but all three of them have kind of stood the test of times in terms of how much respect the work they did has got now I tell you what's unique about the three of them is that they all hit the ground running from the very off if you listen to the beginning of the birthday party and the beginning of the pogues and the beginning of the fall You've got three acts there that define themselves instantly by their personality and their yeah. their, their attitude. There wasn't uh, any slackness to any three of those bands, and you knew nope. what you were getting from day one. And I think because all three of them were visionary like that. I mean, I can remember seeing Nick Cave in Scandinavia. I went to do 
um, the review of him out in Sweden or somewhere. And I, I put in the review that he could become like our Sinatra. And by that, I meant playing places like the Royal Albert Hall and just people listening to him, you know, yeah. kind of doing his croonier songs. And he's yeah. become like that. Yeah, and I, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, and I mean, I genuinely thought that because he would be sort of like, you know, lurching around and being very dramatic and then he'd sit down at the piano and play a really, like, beautiful song back then even. And I think, I wonder if Mark would have ever gone like that. Probably. Billy Fury. Yeah, yeah. Well, at the time I knew Nick Cave had crossed over was I was in work and the bloke yeah. opposite me, his phone went off and it was Red Right Hand was his ringtone. And I thought, how the... Oh, do you know Red Ryan by Nick Cave? I mean, his, fav- his favourite band's Queen, I think, this guy. I thought, yeah, oh, and it, it's the theme tune to Peaky Blinders. That's what. That's how he knew uh, it. Yes. But isn't that, is that the song they did with Kylie? No, no, that's no. Um, the Wild Rose. Yeah. Red yeah. Right Hand is the uh, the one, it's the theme to Peaky Blinders. But this guy, when he, his phone went off and he had Nick Cave as his ringtone, yeah. I thought, hang on, but someone crossed over here. <laughs> Yeah, but it, it was amazing. That was really strange when that happened, but it was you could see it back then. Can I just yeah. ask you both what your favourite memory is of <laughs> being in the fall and Mark? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, that is a good question. Imagine they're not connected. But yeah. is the no, one... no, they are. Not, the, the, my right, favourite yeah. memory is... Yeah. I'll go first, Steve, while you're having to think. Yeah, it's go when on. I, I did a gig. They got me in to do one gig, and... Um, it went all right, and then Mark. And then I had to audition for my place. It was me and another guy who both auditions to be the drummer, and they did this song called New Puritan, and it had been on a, a, an album, but just in the bedroom, just like a cassette of them playing it in the bedroom, yeah. and they, they, they did it in this rehearsal. I put the drums to it, and I remember Mark saying, "That's fantastic! That you, you'll have to start this song." And he sort of said, "You sort of commissioned me to write this drum intro for it," and I thought, "Fucking hell!" I think that's probably my best memory of Mark and the Fall. He, he, what, he, so what, what did he say? Say it again a bit slower. He said, "That's fucking brilliant! That drumming. Uh, you're going to have to start the song now." And he made <coughs> me like write this drum intro for the for New Puritan, and we did it on a Peel session. And it, I think that's one of the few times when he really was really enthusiastic about me drumming. So that's how insecure he, I am. Was he generous though at times when you were rehearsing and, and writing songs? At times, yeah, yeah. Uh... He was always, he was always well up until he wasn't. He was always very generous with you about your bass playing, Steve, wasn't he? He was he was a big fan of your bass playing. Yeah, he didn't say it. A lot. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't say it a lot. Okay. <laughs> we didn't necessarily well, say it. He didn't necessarily mean it, but I yeah. felt that he, um, he he was always very sort of uh, proud and protective of the band. Yeah, like yeah. only only he could criticize them. Yeah, that's, that's what it felt like, and I do think that there were. I mean, your bass particularly was such a distinctive sound. It would have been a different band without all the members, I guess. But you know, from that period. But um, what, what about what about you, Steve? Did you have a favourite yeah. moment? Uh, you, always said, you always said the ballet was your proudest. Yeah, moment. the ballet was the, the sort of high point of being in it. I think it was so colourful, wasn't it? That's what my memory of it. Just amazing-looking yeah. sets and. It felt like, in the same way as we were talking then about Nick Cave going into a different dimension, you know, beyond this kind of the memory of the birthday party into to, to what he is now. When the four were doing that, um, the uh, Curious Orange, it just felt like they'd, they'd totally gone beyond that realm of the of the John Peel sessions and uh, yeah. 
you know, the smaller venues. It, it, it was good. I'm not. He was good at that. At, 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 like, like with the play and with the ballet of just not not being not wanting to be a band that just did album tour, album yeah. tour. Do you think he's good? There's a book anywhere that he wrote, a novel or anything like that, or well, I don't know. There's, a, there's a screenplay he wrote for there's a, a science film fiction. Wrote, have you yeah. seen that? Oh yeah, I've read about that. I've not seen yeah. it. Somebody sent me a link to that actually. Yeah, well, that's mm. out as a book now. Um, the screen, uh, the others, I think it's called. So that would yeah, be interesting. I, I, I found some letters from him. You know. Wow. Yeah. He, he didn't get many words on the page with handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> it's like about, it's about like twenty-eight words per page. It's mad. Also, mad sloping up, bottom left to top right, like factory roofs. You yeah, know, yeah. like scrolling all over the place. Well, I mean, he had, he had handwriting that was almost like a font, wasn't it? There's someone did one. One of the on the one of the websites, they did a font based on his handwriting, the full font. Yeah, what did you used to call him behind his back? <laughs> I'm not telling you. I don't mean, swear, I don't mean insults. I mean, it was there a nickname for him? I don't think so. I don't no, think so. No, I don't think so. We were as good as gold. <laughs> yeah, I think we're going to have to wrap it up there, James. Yeah. I think that. You know what? I know you wanted me to. Well, I actually asked him. I think I asked him if I could come on. So one of my mates, Steve Hill, recommended that come on it. But um, it's just been great to, to chat to you. Thank no, it's you. Been great. Right. No, it's been great to speak to you. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's uh, a revelation. pleasure, and I hope that I hope the book goes really well. I'm yeah. sure it will. Yeah, by the way, if anyone wants it, because Waterstones distribution's all over the shop, um, if they email me at James, not email me. They message me, message me on Twitter or Instagram at James James Brown. I'm just selling them direct. I mean, it's done well for Amazon and stuff, but I can do a, I can sign it and dedicate it. So it's at James James Brown. Thanks for joining us this week on the first episode of Series 3 of Old Brother. Hope you enjoyed it. Episodes are released every two weeks, so keep an eye out for episode two. Please follow us on Twitter, at Old Brother Show, where you can find links to our Spotify playlist. Or why not subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher or RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, give us a rating on iTunes, subscribe on the YouTube, or just tell your friends. For further reading, you can check out our books about the fall, Big Midweek and have a reading guest, Root Publishers and Old Brother Bookstores. Hope to speak to you all again soon, and remember, if you're driving, set your car. Ta-da! Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month, or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.